Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series, a new series we have just recently begun in the book of Acts. We are going through chapter by chapter. We want to look at this entire book and as always I want to mention uh, notes and recordings of previous sessions are all available online at www dot new dash life dash ministries dot org and just follow the menu there to download those things. An easier way if you are able to do it is to subscribe to New Life Ministries podcasts and you'll actually automatically get all of the notes and recordings on your phone or other device and that way you don't have to be downloading each time. But whatever uh, suits you, I would strongly, strongly recommend downloading the notes and having them available because uh, this is turning into quite a massive study and lots and lots of scriptures that we want to cross-reference as we're going through this extremely important portion of scripture. Um, I can't emphasize enough how much my study in the book of Acts these past couple of months have deeply impacted me. And it is not my interest or desire that this just be a Bible study that fills our head with more knowledge. I am really praying that this stirs our hearts, that God opens our eyes and gives us a clearer vision of the church he wants to build in these last days. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's not your church, my church, or anybody else's church. It's his church that we are interested in. And the reason the book of Acts is so important for us to study is the birth of the church we actually witness in the opening chapters of Acts and we can actually watch how it grows and develops. And one of the things I want to keep challenging you with as we go through the book of Acts is to observe what a real church looks like. Observe the many, many marks and characteristics of a true church and also what a real church does not look like. And I think we're going to find a lot of things that we've inherited as customs and traditions which have almost become sacred now in churches are nowhere to be found in the book of Acts. And I think God is trying to renew our minds, give us a fresh and a clear vision of what His church is to look like, how it is to function, how it is to grow. And so, the church that we're going to be learning about in the book of Acts was born on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And prior to that, we have some very important things that we've begun to look at in chapter 1, where we started last week. And let me just recap a couple of things that we've already touched on in chapter 1 of Acts. We 
know that it's generally accepted that Luke, the writer of the gospel that bears his name, he was a physician, he's also the writer of the book of Acts. And he was very careful to investigate all of his stories and to give very orderly, accurate, detailed accounts. So God used Luke in a very singular way to record the first 30 years of church history. And as mentioned, certain portions of the book of Acts are written in the first person plural, meaning we went here and we did such and such, implying that Luke was actually there as a companion to Paul or some of the other apostles that were traveling. So, it, it gives us a bird's-eye view, uh, an eyewitness account of some of the important developments in the early church. And we mentioned last time that in these opening verses of Acts, Jesus, after rising from the dead, he could have easily ascended right back up to the Father. If, if I were him, I'd be in a hurry to get back to heaven. I've done enough on earth. I want to go back to glory. I want to go back to the right hand of my Father. But very interestingly, we're told here in Acts 1 that he remained another 40 days specifically to spend with his apostles. That's why many Bible translations actually refer to this book as the Acts of the Apostles. There's emphasis throughout the book of Acts on the apostles, their life, and their ministry. And we talked quite a bit about that last time. We've sort of over-glamorized or dramatized the name apostle. All it means is a messenger. It was one set apart by God and sent out with his message. And actually, uh, there are some parts of the New Testament where the Greek word apostolos, which is normally translated apostle, is also translated a delegate, a messenger, or even a representative. So, it was really no big deal except for the fact that these men had been hand-picked by Jesus and... After his resurrection, Jesus spends 40 more days with them doing several things. Convincing them with many proofs that he was alive, that he was risen from the dead. That was important because one of their primary messages was to be Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. We are witnesses of that. We can testify to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So he appeared to them a number of times over those 40 days, convincing them that he was alive. He ate with them. He showed himself to them on a number of occasions, and we looked at some of those uh, examples last time. Secondly, Over that period of 40 days, the book of Acts, here in chapter 1, tells us 
that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now we're going to get more into that tonight, but I find that fascinating. For three and a half years, he had talked to them about the kingdom. He gave them numerous parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And yet, he now has so much more that he wants to reveal to them about the kingdom. He has to stay with them another 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And again, uh, he wasn't trying to start a church yet. He wasn't giving a seminar on church growth or church government or any of the any of those things. All he was doing was speaking to his apostles, A, I'm risen from the dead, B, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And we saw last time, there's a lot of emphasis throughout the New Testament, not just in the book of Acts, on the importance of the apostles, their doctrine, their life, and how God appointed them first in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 2 all speak about this. Appointed the apostles first to be the foundation of the church together with Christ. So it's like in these final 40 days that Jesus is on the earth, he's getting that foundation all lined up and firm and ready to go so that on the day of Pentecost he can start building his church. Now, if you're following in the outline, this puts us on page 8 of part 2, and this part 2 is entitled Waiting for the Promise. So, right now, the apostles and other believers have been told to wait Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of my Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, picking it up at letter D in the outline, Christ's resurrection. As I just mentioned, he spent 40 days giving them many convincing proofs that he was alive. I really like that, and I often speak about this, that... Our faith as Christians is not a blind faith. God wants to convince us in our faith that what we are believing in is real. It's true. It's backed up by eyewitness accounts. We believe anything else we read in a history book except for the Bible. And yet, we have far more historical evidence that a man named Jesus lived approximately 2,000 years ago, was crucified, was buried, and over 500 eyewitnesses saw him alive again. And yet, many people will say, oh, I don't know if I can believe that story. It may be a fairy tale. And yet, how quickly we believe in Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, or these other historical figures, how much more evidence we have that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And throughout the book of Acts, the risen Christ, 
the resurrection from the dead is a very important theme. And I've listed a number of scriptures. We're not going to read all of them. But Acts 1, 2, 4, 17, 23, 24, so many places in Acts, it talks about the resurrection. Especially the fact that these apostles he had chosen and prepared to be witnesses of his resurrection. We will come to that in verse 22 of Acts 1. Let me go ahead and read just that one reference. <coughs> Excuse me. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That, of course, is Peter speaking to the other apostles and disciples. A witness with us of his resurrection. And later on, Paul the Apostle would write to the Corinthians in chapter 15, which the whole chapter speaks about the importance of the doctrine of resurrection from the dead. And Paul basically sums it up in this one statement. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, end of the whole story. Christianity is fruitless, vain, useless, if there's no resurrection. That's the centerpiece of the whole gospel. Christ raised from the dead. So, that's why Jesus concentrated so much effort on convincing these 11 men that he was risen from the dead. And then, as I just mentioned, he gives them what is essentially a 40-day seminar on the kingdom of God. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And by no coincidence, the book of Acts, it's sort of like the two covers of a book, or two bookends, Chapter 1 starts on this theme of the kingdom of God, and Acts 28, the last chapter, it ends on that very same theme. Acts 28, uh, 23, it says, They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying from morning till evening. He explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. You know, I was meditating on this. Jesus was able to talk 40 days about the kingdom of God. I doubt that most of us could even talk 40 minutes about the kingdom Paul was able to talk from morning till evening about the kingdom of God to all of the people who were coming to the house where he was under house arrest. All day long he could talk about the kingdom. And earlier in the book of Acts, we read in one instance where he spoke all night long. And that's where the young man Eutychus fell asleep in the window and fell down and died on the ground, and Paul went and prayed for him and raised him back to life. Acts 28.31, 
it says, Boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I've given a number of other references throughout the book of Acts to the kingdom of God. Philip preached the good news of the kingdom. The apostles went from city to city preaching the kingdom, teaching about the kingdom of God. Let me say a couple of things here. I don't want to get too far into this. But the kingdom of God, when people hear that phrase, it sounds very glamorous. We think of thrones and, you know, gates of pearl and golden walls and all this stuff. But kingdom means government. It's the government of God. And a lot of people love the glamorous, the glorious part of it. Oh, thrones and angels and golden streets. Sure, we'll take all of that. But we don't want God to govern our lives. We want to keep doing our own thing. But unfortunately, the kingdom of God doesn't work that way. Those who want to be a part of the kingdom of God have to surrender, lock, stock, and barrel, everything, all their hopes and dreams and ambitions, their desires, their possessions, everything must be laid at his feet, and he is now king. He now becomes Lord, and I am submitting myself to the government of God. And we're going to talk about this from time to time as we move further into the book of Acts, but this is a very real government. It's not like human government, but it is nevertheless the government of God. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, uh, we love to sing it at Christmas, but it says the government will be upon his shoulders. So Christ, the Son of God, the babe born in Bethlehem, whose name is Wonderful Counselor, etc., the government is now on his shoulders. And the message of the book of Acts from cover to cover is the kingdom is now coming. God is now going to establish his government in this thing we call the church. It's not like man's government. It's not a dictatorship. It's not a pyramid structure. It's the kingdom of God where God governs his people. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus only mentions the word church twice, but he mentions the kingdom over and over and over. And particularly in Matthew 13, he gives parable after parable about the kingdom of God. And the disciples actually interrupted him there, and they said, Lord, why are you speaking in so many parables? And he said, it's because the secrets of the kingdom have been revealed to you, but they've been hidden from the other people. In other words, these parables aren't to help them to understand the kingdom. Quite the contrary. I'm speaking sort of in code language, which you only will be able to understand, because the kingdom cannot be taught. It must be revealed. That is so important, I'm going to repeat it. We can't just learn spiritual things. 
They have to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And particularly, the kingdom of God is not something that we can grasp with our carnal, natural minds. We can go to college for a hundred years and we'll still never understand the kingdom. It has to be revealed to us. Jesus told Peter, Peter, this has not been revealed to you by men, but my Father revealed it to you, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on this rock I will build my church. So we're going to see this more and more as we get into Acts chapter 2, but the church is born only through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The revelation of the church comes only through the Holy Spirit. We can't sit down and analyze and figure it out. We can even read the Bible a hundred times and we'll still not understand the church unless we cry out to God for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and reveal these things to us. Let me demonstrate this right here in Acts 1. After 40 days of being taught by the risen Christ on the kingdom of God, these apostles still didn't get it because they've not yet received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So look what happens in Acts 1.6. Right after he's finished teaching them 40 days on the kingdom. It says, So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So here, for 40 days... He's talking to them about the kingdom of God. And they come back and they basically missed it entirely. They're thinking he's talking politics for Israel. And we can sometimes make the same mistake. We get politics all jumbled up with the kingdom of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. God is interested in the affairs of men. That's why we're told to pray for kings and governors and rulers and those that God has placed in authority. God has set the boundaries of every single nation. He's concerned with nations, just as he's concerned with individuals. But we must be very, very careful, particularly here in the U.S. We're in this hot political season with the presidential election coming up in November, we can get this all jumbled up and start thinking the kingdom of God is the same thing as U.S. politics. They're not the same. They're not at all the same. And they got their politics confused with Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And because they're still basically looking through carnal eyes and having a carnal perspective... When they hear the word kingdom, all they can think about is Israel. He must be referring to the Jewish people and to Israel. And so that's why they say, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom 
to Israel? Well, his answer was indirect. He didn't say yes or no. He just said it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. And then he changes the whole subject. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In other words, don't worry about Israeli politics right now. Stay focused on the kingdom. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, the kingdom is going to come upon you. The kingdom is going to be established in you. Stay focused on the kingdom of God, not on the politics of this world. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus was very clear about this. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. <clears throat> Don't get American politics mixed up with the kingdom of God. Don't get any other national politics mixed up with the kingdom of God. They're separate. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It is not fleshly. It's not carnal. It has nothing to do with nationalities or this group of people or that group of people. The kingdom of God is spiritual. It is not of this world. And just a side note, for those that may have fallen into this erroneous teaching of what's known as substitution theology, uh, which basically teaches that the church has taken the place of Israel. And so any of the promises or scriptures, prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel have now been replaced with the church. I'm sorry, it's called replacement theology. Substitution is the same idea, but it's called replacement theology. Which basically, the church is now Israel. God's done with Israel. Nothing more is going to happen with the Jewish people as a separate and distinct people. That is false. There are many, many unfulfilled promises and prophecies concerning Israel, concerning the land of Israel, the people of Israel. God will restore the kingdom to Israel. <coughs> but that will happen after the church age, during the millennium. And not to get real deep into end times things, but um, Jesus simply said, that's not for you to really be worried about right now. Stay focused on the kingdom of God. Paul talks more about this in Romans 11. God has not rejected the Jews. He's not given up on Israel. He still has more to do in his program. But note this very carefully, and we're going to come back to this because it's so important. Man, in his carnal nature... It's very hard to change his way of thinking. We get set in our ways of thinking. And even when God is trying to reveal something new, we keep clinging on to the old. This was particularly hard for the Jewish people. Because, remember, for centuries, they have been told by God that they are a separate, chosen, distinct nation. And under the Old Covenant, given 
through Moses at Mount Sinai, they were God's treasured, chosen people. No one else. And if you wanted to come under God's blessings, you had to convert and, to be, and become a Jew. So what is about to happen now, Jesus is talking to them about a whole new kingdom. Not the kingdom of Israel now, the kingdom of God. And even after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it would take them about eight to ten years. Listen to this carefully. This is powerful. It would take the early Jewish Christians, because initially we have a Jewish church in Jerusalem, Jewish believers and apostles who are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're told very specifically in the next verse, in Acts 1.8, to start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, then to Samaria, and to the uttermost, or the ends of the earth, uttermost parts of the earth, with the gospel. But after ten years, they went nowhere. They only stayed in Jerusalem. And had they not been shaken up and scattered by fierce persecution, which started with the death of Stephen at the end of Acts 7, it's only in Acts 8, eight chapters from now, and about eight to ten years from now, historically, that they even begin to step out of their little comfort zone of having a Jewish church in Jerusalem. That's human nature. We like to stick with our own. You know, all the Koreans stick with the Koreans. All the Americans stick with the Americans. All the Guyanese like to hang out with the Guyanese. And if the whole thing started in our hometown, we'd be quite happy to have our own American spirit-baptized church and forget about the rest of the world. But some of these carnal tendencies and cultures and traditions, they die hard. But the Holy Spirit will keep blasting away at that until He can break us out of our carnal cultures and our little carnal circles and go into all the world with the gospel. So, they're still in this mindset, oh Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Basically, in a roundabout way, his answer is, no, not now. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. <coughs> God has set times. Notice that. It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set. That's a very powerful word. Times that the Father has set. If you look it up in the Greek, it literally means fixed or prearranged. In other words, Somewhere in heaven, God has a, cal a calendar, and he's fixed dates. He's actually written them on that calendar. They're already prearranged. We don't know what a lot of them are. That's what Jesus says. It's not even for you to know right now what those times or dates are. Let the Father worry about them. 
He's already set them by his own authority. He's already fixed them on his calendar. And notice this quote that comes later in the book of Acts when Paul was speaking in Athens in Greece. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. He says, From one man... God made every nation of men. Of course, talking about Adam. So all the different nations, all the so-called races, actually the Bible doesn't talk about races, because we're all one race. We're the human race. Different peoples, different people groups, different nations, different tribes, different customs, but from one man... God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Listen to the next part. He determined the times. Same concept. He fixed. He prearranged. He set times. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God defined the boundaries of every nation, and sometimes those boundaries change through wars or through other treaties and uh, transactions between different nations. Nevertheless, God in heaven has set times on his calendar for every nation. And I have to believe that on his calendar, he has set times for the United States of America. And listen to me very carefully tonight. I'm not trying to scare anybody. But no nation, including the U.S. of A., can continue to walk in the darkness and immorality and perversion that this nation is walking increasingly in. No nation can do that and not have a date set on the calendar where they're going to meet with their God in judgment. He's determined times for each nation. And this nation, in all of its arrogance, thinking that it's so wealthy and so powerful, God has already greatly diminished this nation in recent years because of the increasing darkness and immorality and perversion that is not only allowed, but it is pushed down everyone's throats. Meanwhile, the rights of believing Christians are eroding away very, very rapidly. And don't think that God isn't noticing all these things. He's determined the end game for every nation, including America. And God will set up one nation, and he will pull down another when they continue to thumb their nose at him and walk away from his precepts, his laws, and his ways. So, um, this sounds nice when we read it. He determined the times set for them, referring to every nation, but it has 
another side to it as well. Every nation, including the United States, God has determined times for this nation and the exact places, the exact boundaries. And that revelation that Paul is giving to the Athenians, here's what it should inspire or produce in the listeners. Next verse. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And again, we're interested in the kingdom of God. We're really not that interested in politics. However, some of these things that we observe happening reflect the judgment and the hand of God in this nation. I have never in my lifetime witnessed a political landscape like the one we now see in America. With the upcoming election in November, if you're a true Bible-believing, God-loving Christian, it's very hard to make a choice in the election. I'm not telling you don't vote. I'm not telling you do vote. But I look at the two presidential candidates, and I don't know if I can vote for either of them. And maybe a vote for one is a vote against the other one, but I've been saying this for months. I've been calling the 2016 election in this country the pick-your-poison election. Neither one of them is a good choice. Neither one of them really represents the views and the beliefs of an evangelical, baptized-in-the-Holy-Spirit Christian. So we have to pray. We have to cry out to God that beyond the voting booth in November, that men would seek God. Cry out to God in repentance. Pray that the Holy Spirit moves on the hearts of men and women and pulls down the strongholds of arrogance and pride and all of this perversion, gay marriage and transgender bathrooms. My God, what filth we have now come to in this nation. And don't for a minute think that God is winking and looking the other way. He will bring judgment on this land if it continues to go in this direction. If you're a a Bible-believing Christian, fast, pray, cry out to God that somehow God would melt the hearts, tear down the hardness and the resistance to the Gospel and the Holy Spirit that has taken over millions and millions of people in this country. So, God has set times. He basically tells the apostles, don't worry about, right, about that right now. Stay focused on the important thing, which is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And in verses 4 and 5, in Acts 1, he had already told them to wait. Don't leave Jerusalem Wait for the gift my Father promised, 
which you've already heard me speak about, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Several different terms are mentioned in these scriptures, and a few others that we'll read in a minute. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're all referring to the same thing, but just different aspects. Important to understand each one of them. It's a promise. God promised the Holy Spirit for every Christian. It's not some special gift he only gives to an apostle here or a prophet there. The, the Holy Spirit is a promise from Almighty God to every single one of his children. No one should be without it. Secondly, it's a gift. That means it's free. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't have to convince God, oh, I'm holy enough now, I'm spiritual enough now, you can give me the Holy Spirit. No, it's a gift. It's a free gift. No strings attached. Just reach out the hand and receive the gift. Thirdly, it's called a baptism. There's baptism in water. The word baptize, we've already studied, it doesn't mean to sprinkle. It doesn't mean to draw a little cross on the forehead. Baptize means to totally immerse, to dunk, to saturate something in something else. In the case of water baptism, we're going to dunk the believer completely under the water, immerse them in the water. But in the case of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we're going to be immersed into the Spirit of God. We're going to dive in. We're going to plunge in and be completely covered with the Holy Spirit. I like that. I want to be dunked in the Holy Spirit. I don't want just a few drops on my forehead. I want to be immersed in the Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Spirit until it overflows. John, uh, John's Gospel, Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit a lot, especially in chapters 7, 14, 15, and 16. Chapter 7, he spoke about rivers of living water coming out of the innermost being, referring to the Holy Spirit. He said, if anybody's thirsty, not a problem. Come to me and drink. All you have to do is come to me and believe in me, and out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. He was speaking about the Holy Spirit, who had not yet been given, because he had not yet been glorified. He's now about to be glorified, and that's about to happen in the next chapter, on the day of Pentecost. But look at a few things he says in the Gospel of John about the Holy Spirit. John fourteen twenty six. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, 
and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, right away on the day of Pentecost, we're going to be amazed when we see Peter quoting verbatim long portions of Scripture from Joel and David, and you're going to see that over and over throughout the book of Acts. And I don't think these guys memorized all those passages. I think when the Holy Spirit filled them, he did exactly what Jesus here promised. When the Counselor comes, he will teach you all things, and he will remind you of everything I have said to you. He's going to bring back to your memory every parable, every teaching, everything I have said to you. What an amazing promise. Especially if your memory is starting to falter a little bit. Well, the Holy Spirit's memory is still very, very good. He can remember every word that Jesus ever spoke, and he can bring it back to our mind and our remembrance. John 15, 26 and 27. When the Counselor, that of course is the Holy Spirit, when the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. <coughs> now, in your notes, you'll notice I have bolded the word testify. Because it's the same Greek word that's used in Acts 1.8, where it is translated witness. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the same word, to testify or to be a witness. Interestingly, and we'll come to this shortly, the Greek word is martureo, and it's also translated sometimes martyr. doesn't seem to be related, but in God's mind, a witness is also testifying and prepared to be a martyr. Many of them would end up not only being witnesses for Christ, they would end up being martyrs. So that's the Greek word that's used here. When the Holy, Spirit's com when the Holy Spirit comes, He will testify about me, and you will testify. So you will become martyrs testifying what the Holy Spirit has revealed to you. And lastly, here in John, John 16, verses 7 to 15. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him 
to you when he comes. I'll just pause for a second. I must go away so he can come in my place. And remember, the book of Acts we could also call the Acts of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is about to exit now. He's going back to the Father. He's now going to send the Counselor and he's going to continue what Jesus began to do and teach while he was still here on earth. So, I'm going to send the Counselor to you, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to Me by taking from what is Mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Very important promises concerning the coming Holy Spirit. <coughs> now, I want to introduce one more section, and we'll have to stop here for tonight. Again, if you're following on the notes, we've come to page 12. Try to get this picture. Three and a half years, these apostles have spent with Jesus. They've traveled around with him. They've ministered with him. They've listened to all of his teachings. They've watched him raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out devils. They've even been sent out on missions to preach, to heal the sick, to cast out devils, because he gave them authority to do that. Now he's risen from the dead. They've seen him in bodily form. Forty days he's been with them, convincing them that he's alive, he's alive, he's alive, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And you would expect him to say, all right, now go get them. Go into all the world and preach the good news of the kingdom cast out devils, raise the dead, do mighty signs and wonders, and let's build this thing called the church. He says just the opposite. Wait. Don't go anywhere. Wait. Luke chapter 24 is where Luke ends his gospel, and they, they sort of dovetail together, Luke 24 and Acts 1, it's, uh, it repeats some of the same things as we're transitioning ahead from his resurrection and finally his ascension. But look at how Luke presents this at the end of his gospel. Luke 24, 46 to 49. 
He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses. There's that same word again. You're going to testify. You're going to be witnesses of all these things. Verse 49. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. That's why it's called the promise of the Father. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. He's referring to the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. But, stay in the city. Wait in the city. Until you have been clothed with power from on high. King James, I like, until you have been endued with power. The word that's used there actually refers to something sinking into a garment. Like if you poured water or dye onto a coat or a shirt, it actually sinks into the fabric. The fabric soaks it up. It becomes endued with that liquid or that dye, sinking into a garment or investing uh, clothing, putting something on. Let me put all this together for you. We can know volumes of information. We can have all the blueprints and all the church plans and everything. You and I are going to accomplish nothing until, key word here, until we're filled with the power of God. That's the message I want to leave with you tonight that we need to pray over. Um, we've got folks coming to our churches that are still not filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we can build the church without the power of God. Peter, James, and John, these were great men of God. They saw things you and I will never see with our own eyes. They were with Jesus when he walked on water, when he changed water to wine. And yet, he's even telling them, don't try to do anything, because you can't until, until you have been clothed with power from on high. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen when the promise of the Father comes upon you. We have to really pray for one another that everyone in our churches now gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Everyone. Young children, teenagers, old people, everybody in between. We have to fast and pray until everyone is filled with the Holy Spirit. And not just, you know, we go to a meeting and somebody touches us on the head and we feel a little goosebump or something. What does it say here? Until you are clothed with power. You see, the, the, the mission, the work that God is calling us to, cannot be done with book learning, with college degrees, and with human eloquence and wisdom. I'm sorry, I, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but that will not cut it. We need 
power if we want to see the real church arise. we got to cry out to God for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon everyone in the church now. And it's the same word that we're going to be looking at more next week. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It doesn't just say you're going to talk in tongues. We'll, we'll talk about speaking in tongues. It's important for us to look at that. But he didn't say you're going to talk in tongues when the Holy Spirit comes. You're going to receive power. The Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite, dynamic, dynamo. How can you receive dunamis power and yet you're a you're not a dynamic Christian. It doesn't make any sense. If we're receiving the dynamite of the Holy Spirit, it should be transforming every one of us into a dynamic believer, a powerful Christian. And coming back to my goals for doing this study in the book of Acts, Yes, we might learn a little bit of church history. We might understand a few more things about how the church began and elders and prophets and apostles and all of that. No harm in learning those things. But if that's all we accomplish, I have failed to reach my goal. My prayer, and I'm serious about this, I fasted and prayed a lot throughout the summer as I was studying through the book of Acts, crying out to God, God, we want the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. We need the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our churches. Would you please restore the modern church to the apostolic power and authority that we see in the book of Acts? And I pray, and I'm going to pray now as we close, I pray that you're stirred Something starts to stir. You might feel a little bit uncomfortable say, I think he's talking to me. I don't think I have the Holy Spirit yet. Fine. Get stirred up. Cry out to God. Fast and pray. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we need Spirit-filled churches filled with Spirit-filled believers, or we're kidding ourselves. We have no church. We might have a Methodist or a Presbyterian social gathering, but we're not going to have what they had in the book of Acts. They had signs and wonders. They had people healed, raised from the dead, and they also had people dropping dead in the church who dared to lie to the Holy Spirit. We're talking about real power here, folks. And I want to stir you up to be praying for God to pour out and manifest this kind of power not just in the pastor or a couple of leaders, but in every member of the church. Wait until you are endued with power. We can't accomplish the mission any other way. Yes, I might be able to teach a few things on Wednesday nights, but just putting it in the head is not going to accomplish anything. I know that. I know that unless the Holy Spirit moves, we're not going to accomplish very much. We might build something that looks, <coughs> excuse me, 
that looks pretty impressive to men, but it's not going to accomplish the purpose of God. Jesus is building His church in these last days. We want to find out through the Holy Spirit, and especially through our study of the book of Acts, what does a real church look like? Does our church look like one? Or have we adopted some things that are just traditions of men, and they really have nothing at all to do with the Word of God? Do we need to change some things to align ourselves with the Word of God? I believe we do. And I believe God is going to try to help us to get closer to this apostolic model that we see emerging in the book of Acts. But first things first. Without the Holy Spirit, no church. We still don't have a church in Acts 1. They're waiting. Waiting for the promise, the gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when we finally get to Acts chapter 2, we're going to see what that means. What kind of power came on these men and women. They were changed from whimpering cowards who denied Christ three times to bold lions who stood up and looked in the face of kings and high priests and said, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. You need to repent, you need to be baptized, and you also need to receive the Holy Spirit. Let us pray for a real move of the Holy Spirit in these days to come, and a real stirring in our hearts that God would give us a fresh vision of the church He is building in these last days. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, we have no interest in man's philosophies, man's traditions, man's ideas. We are turning our whole hearts now to your word. And we are seeking you. We're crying out to you in these desperate times for you to raise up your church, a mighty organism, a living thing that you have birthed through the power of your Holy Spirit to conquer the gates of hell, to pull down the strongholds of darkness and atheism and perversion. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would visit us with your power, with your Holy Spirit. Tear down anything that's standing in the way, root out any false foundations of men, remove any philosophies that are standing in the way of your word. God, we tremble at your word, and we are praying earnestly that you would lead us, guide us, Give us a fresh vision of the church you are raising up in these last days. God, give us real apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Raise up elders, deacons in the churches. Baptize every member in every church with the Holy Spirit and fire. Give gifts of the Holy Spirit in every church. We can't grow without them. Help us to stop leaning on human wisdom, human book learning, human eloquence, and get filled with the Holy Spirit, and allow the Holy Spirit to raise up the church the way He wants to. 
God, the Spirit, and the Bride say, Come. Your Holy Spirit is gathering together a bride for Jesus Christ. Your Holy Spirit is raising up one church, one holy nation in these last days. Enlighten us. Give us fresh revelation. Help us to walk in the Spirit and walk in the truth as we prepare for that great day. God, seal this revelation in our hearts and continue to open the eyes of our understanding. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. It's never entered the hearts of men, the things that you prepared for those who love you. But you have revealed them to us by your spirit. God, bring revelation into the church in these last days. And we'll praise you and thank you forever and ever. You are faithful. You will do all that you've promised because you are watching over your word to perform it. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we receive every gift and every promise, not by feelings, not by intellect, not by trying to earn it, but we receive it by faith because you've freely given these things to us. We give you praise, honor, and glory now. Bless each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.